Welcome to 20th Century Geek. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to 20th Century Geek. I'm your regular host, Scott Weatherly, and for this episode, I caught up with friend of the show, Julian Darius, to talk about the levels of censorship that spawned out of the release of the book, Seduction of the Innocent, in 1954. How this impacted the comic book industry, and whether a level of control should be placed on media content. Before we get to that, however, I think I should provide a short overview of how the publication of Seduction of the Innocent came about. Following the First World War, society shifted in a number of critical ways. One of the most key ones was the place of children and young adults in the workplace and relationships. The age at which children left school rose and there was less pressure from families forcing their children into good relationships. The outcome was an evident and growing period of development between childhood and adulthood. A period during which adolescents had more free time to spend together without family or work pressures. A period during which they were able to explore who they were and create new ideas and styles. The majority of these were innocent enough, however, as is always the case, some others were less so and started to show signs of aggression towards authority figures and the status quo. So, did parents and authority figures look at the wider social, psychological and economic factors that brought them to this point? Of course not. They looked for the easy scapegoats. Some looked at movies, some looked at the growing base of rock and roll music, and Dr Frederick Wortham looked at comic books. Wortham had been preaching the ills and influences of comic books from the late 40s, building them a collection of case studies and interviews which he would later proclaim supported his notions of the books causing delinquency. He finally pulled all this information together to be published by A Seduction of the Innocent in 1954. The book was a bestseller and stirred up such a whirlwind of misunderstanding and judgement. Comics were pulled from shelves taken from kids' bedrooms and burned. Even the American government responded with congressional hearings bringing in witnesses from both sides to discuss the evidence. The result of these congressional hearings was the Comics Code Authority, a self-governing body that would police the comic industry and the published content. Now, I'm going to hand over to Julian and myself for us to discuss this further and how this level of censorship affected comic quality and how it spilled out into other areas. Century Geek. It's my pleasure, Scott. Glad to be here. It's 
good. So today we've sort of, we've talked about a couple of things uh, in the past, and today we're sort of we're not talking about a specific comic, but we are going to be talking about a publication linked with comics. We are going to be discussing uh, the 1954 publication Seduction of the Innocent, which you know really had a massive impact on the comic book industry uh, at the time. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, I think it's hard for people today to understand what it was like growing up in a time when comics were just thought to be for kids. And, Mm. you know, even as a child of the 80s, you know, who grew up reading, you know, Watchmen and, um, you know, in preparing for this, I actually had a lot of memories coming back of being a kid and hiding my comics from my parents because I was in the single digits and I was reading, you know, mature readers, DC stuff. And Mm. I remember seeing, you know, uh, a blade go through somebody's hand and impale their hand. And, and I loved all that stuff as a kid. Um, and that was maybe like the, uh, 1980s version of, uh, what was going on in the fifties with kids hiding their horror comics. Yeah, I mean that's that's the thing. I mean, um, yeah, I mean, sort of doing the bits and pieces of this. It's horror comics. It seems to be the crux of it. Horror and, and, and or I didn't realize until reading to this that uh, Frederick Wortham, or Doctor Frederick Wortham, who who wrote this uh, book, and it, I mean it's based on his alleged research. Um, he t- he coined the term for all of them as crime comics, and he sort of used that to cover um, crime comics, horror comics, superhero comics. But the the horror comics really seem to get the majority of the bashing um, when it comes to that sort of like the dark influence on on or alleged dark influence on the children of the time. Well, I think you know, Wortham said that uh, any, uh, any comic was a crime comic if it featured crime. So hmm. crime was a legitimate genre at the time, and you had tons of titles like "Crime Does Not Pay" and you know, uh, comics that would feature, you know, an anthology of, you know, sort of gangster stories. And these gangsters would do terrible things. They'd murder women. They'd cut them up. And then at the end, they'd get arrested by the cops, uh, you know, like on the last page. Mm. And, you know, and, and, you know, then a cop would kind of like look at readers and say, ah, you see, crime does not pay. But, you know, obviously the kids are enjoying the eight previous pages of dismemberment. Um, and, and Wortham said that any comic that featured crime was a crime comic. So that would obviously include superheroes, it would include horror, it would include all that other stuff. And I think the horror kind of gets um, a bad rap because there was this famous incident during uh, the uh, hearings in Congress on juvenile delinquency and its origins and the connection of comics with that in which... Um, in which a cover of, I think it was Shock Soup and Stories by EC, was held up with a woman's severed head, and uh, Bill Gaines, head of EC, was being questioned at the time and performed very poorly under pressure, uh, you know, in trying to justify how this severed head was a tasteful cover for kids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I read some of the sort of, say, response, and it sounds like he wasn't, he probably wasn't the best person to bring in on this, but um, it, it's it's an interesting one that say that you know this uh, 
where this all came from as well. Like I say, it's the hor- EC seems to be, like I say, the crux of it. It's the thing that sort of people remember quite a lot about it. Um, but they're forgetting that, they say, there was a whole bunch of the crime comics as well. I, I find it most interesting of, of, of this idea of, of the um, juvenile delinquency. Um, and, and this is obviously comes from this whole thing of, like, you know, who will think of the children kind of uh, mentality. Because there was clearly other issues going on. I mean, this is post, just just post Second World War. Um, you know, Frederick Wortham was already sort of preaching the gospel against comics in as early as like 1947, 1948. Um, mm-hmm. And it does. It, it it feels like an odd time, uh, especially as, as I don't really know. It's an interesting thing because to say this is obviously a very American uh, publication, the research based in America, but from a British perspective. To be blaming comics and things like this for juvenile delinquency in the late forties seems odd. When a lot of these kids had survived the Blitz, they'd been ripped from their homes for for evacuation. So it's a different. I don't. I don't really. You know, what would be the difference between the British and the, the American cultural stance at that point? Well, I mean, we didn't really have a home front during World War II. I mean, mm. there were, you know, there were concerns about the Japanese sending hot air balloons with bombs over and subs off the coast and Nazi infiltrators and things like this. But, um, you know, our experience of World War II was sort of um, by stamps, by war bonds, and then just the men, the able-bodied men being emptied out of the country. Mm. And... You know, this was incredibly influential, uh, like in the feminist movement, as, you know, women took up those jobs in the factories Mm. and then had to leave them when their husbands came back home. Um, And so this was this very influential experience. But I I think that what, you know, while we didn't have the bliss, what what all of this has to do with is this sort of like post-war period in which... Um, sort of after World War II, there were a couple of years in which, like, the rationing slowly disappeared, and um, you know, you could buy metal and, and paper again, and life got back to normal. And then, obviously, we went through a kind of like what some people nostalgically look back on as a kind of like golden age, where uh, you know, the American economy was humming along and was, you know. We had won World War II, and, and we were becoming the global superpower. Mm. And, you know, at the same time, there was a lot of discontentment. And I think that all of the uh, strains that came out in the 60s counterculture were there in the post-war period. Um, it was just a very uh, staid, conformist society. Um, and we think of that as the 50s, but... Um, but that was really a side effect of sort of, you know, the post-war boom, boom everybody getting a house, you know, uh, home ownership bikes. You have, you know, the, the origin of the suburbs and, mm. you know, the highway system expanding and all of those things that you think of sort of classic Americana. That was the surface. But underneath what was going on is separate but equal, you know, is, um, you know, a lot of, tension, a lot of depression, a lot, you know, all the stuff you see in Mad Men of sort of like 
well, I'm married now. Uh, what's it all about, Alfie? Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, that was underneath the surface. And a lot of these kids, some of them grew up without dads because their dads mm. were away at war. Mm. Um, and they grew up in an America that, you know, a whole generation was just absent fighting this war. Um, and so, you know, in the aftermath of World War II, they were expected to, you know, not curse and dress properly and, and you know, be very part of a very conformist society. But underneath there was a lot of, strife and a lot of, um, you know, all of the tensions that you get when you have that kind of conformity. Yeah, I think that's, you know, you, you see that I think in the 50s there is um, that idea of sort of, like you say, the, the polished surface, but the sort of, um, you know, but what goes on underneath. Um, I mean, the the, the, the team, I mean, the thing I didn't, I, I knew it, but I sort of found out more about for this was... The teenager technically didn't exist really until, like the forties. Um, right. I'm not not to say people jump from twelve to, to twenty one, but you know that the concept of of what we would today consider a teenager was sort of moulded in that sort of um, that war era um, because of things like spending longer in school, having lot you know spending not joining work um, as young and all those sorts of things. Um, yeah, that, that's very true, and that plays into the whole juvenile delinquency idea that, you know, before then, you know, if you imagine life in, you know, the 30s, I mean, first of all, there was the Great Depression, mm. um, and if you grew up prior to World War II, you were expected to work on a farm. Yeah. You were expected to, you know, people had kids just to have another hand yeah. to work around the house. That was just expected, and the idea of even of childhood as an innocent time. Um, you know, you go back to like 1900, and people are living in you know uh, cramped quarters that would shock us today. Mm. Uh, watching their parents have sex, you know, that was normal. Um, and by the time you get to the, the the 40s and the 50s, you know, there is this sort of like invention of this liminal state, right? This adolescence teenage period, um, you know, that, I mean, you see that in, in comics too, right? I mean, it's the new Teen Titans. It's mm. all of these teen characters that kind of come out of, of the, in the 50s and going on to the 60s. But yeah, that idea of like a teenager or an adolescent as sort of a liminal state between being a child and being an adult uh, really didn't exist until, uh the late 40s early 50s so really it's, it's like you say it's those that 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 period um you know when the teenage is created it, it sort of becomes filled with um something they've got spare time they're able to express themselves they're becoming their own people um and you know it's, it's funny that like we talk about comics um you know obviously this is 1954 when this comes up but Wortham is doing his research during the late 40s um, and it's during this period of change. So you're asking kids, like you say, that have come out of this, this turbulent time and are now being expected to do something different and um, him to then sort of see this, see things in either their responses or to see things in, in society as general. It's, you can see how he was able to... Uh, manipulate and misrepresent um, 
you know, what he was seeing. Um, I'm trying to think of the examples now. Is is you know you hear the stories of of oh yeah, kids read this comic and then they went off and you know they they would race cars or even younger than that they go off and then they did fight and they do all this other stuff and you think well, but is is that just like I say was it an expression of of them doing other things and and you know that loose tying of it from uh, a pop culture item as a comic to an outcome, you know like gang culture which is sort of you know you see played up in silly things like west side story or greece um <laughs> yeah but but it was growing at that time um you know the greasers and and you know the, and that sort of thing um it's almost like they were they have the they have what i say is the symptom or they have the output and there's a desperate scrabble to connect it to something to explain to themselves what is going on I think that's true, and I and I think you know part of that has to do with that conformity, right? Like mm. why why are these people uh, why are the our kids not eager to grow up and put on a gray flannel suit, you know? Um, but I, but I think it's also important to you know to understand like at the time um, the I think there it's estimated that there were roughly fifty million comic books sold annually in America. Wow. Comics were an industry that we we have never lived in and in a year where comics sold fifty million copies. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and of course the population of America was significantly lower than too. Um, you know, this was and the average comic was passed around. You know, you'd pass it. Uh, adults read them sometimes, but you know they became uh, known as a kind of kids thing. Adults read them, especially during World War II, while they were in the field. Um, and uh, especially after World War II, there was this shift toward multiple genres. So, like, we think of this as a kind of, like, indie thing that happened in the 80s and the 90s, the sort of shift to um, all these other genres besides just superheroes. Um, and we think of, like, the, the revolution of uh, sci-fi comics as uh, image going on right now and things like that. Um, you know, all of that, in terms of uh, genre uh, diversity, was going on in the 40s. And really, mm-hmm. superheroes were, were not, you know, they were still a, a sizable percentage, but they were not the majority of comics output um, by the end of the 40s. Um, and so... But, you know, you also have to remember, like, these are small, I mean, these, these companies, obviously, when you're selling millions of copies, you know, for a dime, you're making real money, especially in the 40s. But these are, by our standards, unprofessional artists mm-hmm. whose work, some of it is very good, but most of it is terrible. Yeah. They're not expecting there to ever be a collection, right? There's no comics that are ever reprinted or collected. Um and so, you know, this is just a disposable thing printed on newsprint. Nobody's ever going to see it again. Um, the artists and the writers are kind of ashamed to be working on it uh, mm. because it's not seen as a legitimate art. And it's a totally disposable medium that sells 50 million copies a year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so this is totally different than any situation of comics that we've ever lived under. No, that's a really good point, actually. I mean, it, it, you know, it, it seems um, they were so for the say for that period. I mean, they were still relatively new, really. I mean, comics really came about in the mid 
thirties in that in that format that we sort of know relatively know today. Um, mm-hmm. So they they'd only been around for like twenty years. Um, so it was a real boom, I suppose. It's sort of like you know they'd sort of they'd, they'd appeared and you all of a sudden get this rush and and, and you know people all of a sudden jump on this this new uh, medium where they can like mix word and picture together uh, to tell stories in this sort of sequential way. It's, I suppose it's I suppose it's, it's still new. So you know for it to be that prevalent and that sort of um, a, such a big selling point, such a huge part. Uh, and have so many companies as well. I suppose it must, must have been a shock for someone, um, especially for conservatives as well, people that have those conservative values and conservative beliefs, to then see the content of this thing that is so readily available and new and sort of thing. It must have been a real shock for them. Well, you can imagine a, a mother in, in 1947 uh, discovering her uh, son's hoard of comics. Um, and there were a lot of female readers then too. Um, yeah you know, more than there were, you know, in the 70s and 80s, but it's it imagined. But, um, you know, discovering your son's, you know, treasure trove, and he's eight, and he's reading stuff with zombies and gangsters and severed heads and, you know, cannibalism, yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, I suppose it's that thing, isn't it? It is, it's... it's um... The censorships, I mean, there would have been less, I suppose... Uh, despite the say there being the more rules and, and that d- desire for conformity, uh, it, I suppose it was almost like an unchecked uh, medium. You know, no one was actually looking at this thing. I mean, it's funny just before we sort of talked about the podcast, uh, started the podcast, we talked about '80s cartoons and the fact that like you know people really really weren't paying attention to some of the stuff that was being produced then, and not to the extreme of it being like an EC comic, but more for the sense of a quality point of view. But it's very similar, isn't it? It was. Um, you know, all these are daft throwaway things and no one was really in a position of power was looking at that content and, and judging whether it was the right thing to have um, on the on the newsstand, really. Right. Well, you know, the complaints against comics really got going. I mean, there were articles from like 45, 46, 47 um, that are appearing in major publications. And, you know, obviously Wortham became the sort of celebrity spokesperson for that movement. And all of it was um, sort of codified in Seduction of the Innocent, Mm. which is, you know, just a polemic. It reproduces the most grisly panels. I mean, it it takes anecdotes of uh, kids who Wortham had worked with uh, at the Lafarge Clinic and as a psychiatrist and takes these anecdotes and um, couples them together into, you know, the book on the topic. If you want to believe that this juvenile delinquency is all caused by these nasty comics that have polluted our kids' minds, uh, here is the uh, polemic for you. Mm. It's interesting to say, because I say, yeah, he, so he was, you know, was spearheading this. He managed to sort of, I say, bring it together. Uh, and, and his personal bugbear was comics, um, uh, but obviously from a, from that standpoint, you know, from from that period in time, that wasn't the only um, you know thing I know they were looking at. I mean, this is the this era is also like say the birth of rock and roll. Um, you know, El, Elvis is just around the corner, but you've you've already got 
that sort of the, the sort of the uh, the seeds of what we would consider to be rock and roll late 40s early 50s um you know you got films like rebel without a cause i suppose that sort of um th- there's other things that you know you could have looked at um uh, and could have been that 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 uh scapegoat but it seems very much like that because they were them was the first one to, to put this all together and step up put his head above the parapet and step up on that stage like comics became uh, public enemy number one i suppose yeah i mean i think that um i you know i mean here i think we have to kind of like i mean let, let's back up a second and you know like growing up um you know, as somebody who read comics and started as a kid reading you know, about comic history in comics and in fanzines and things like this, um, the story that I had was that Wortham had blamed comics as the cause of all juvenile delinquency. Mm-hmm. Um, there were actually uh, hearings in uh, Congress about this. And the end result was that Congress has kind of demanded that comics clean up their act, and the Comics Code Authority was created that permanently neutered comics, said they had to be for kids and not just that, but the bad guys could never win. You could not depict, you know, I mean, you couldn't even depict, like, vampires and the undead, and and lots of stuff like that was in the early Comics Code. Um, And this medium that I love, and saw as a legitimate art form had been had had its natural evolution ripped apart, mm. diverted in some way. And I think that you know there is a kind of it's very easy to look back and think you know if you if you go back to um, you know you were talking about the the early comic books of the thirties that started as just kind of collecting newspaper strips, right? Mm. The funny. And, you know, and and then by, you know, 46, 47, you're getting this explosion of genres. You're getting romance comics. You're getting crime comics. And, and yeah, most of them are bad. (laughs) Most of them are pulpy. But comics are selling 50 million copies. And whenever one genre starts dying, another one comes up and starts selling like crazy and they had much more adult content you know this is really the first time that that um and this has to do with the juvenile delinquency claims that kids could purchase their own entertainment um so they were making these choices for themselves they weren't just reading you know little house on the prairie or something they went to the newsstand and could could buy these themselves and trade them with their friends and so I think that it's very easy to look back on that and especially see the quality of DC Comics, and you know, which was a standout and which was not representative of the whole, and say, if this, if this history hadn't been derailed, comics could have evolved in the 50s and in the 60s into an adult art form, mm. or at least into a serious form of art in a way that we wouldn't have lost uh, a good 20 years. Well, um, I'll, t- I'll tell you what, then, that, that, cause you, I, I, so that was one of the questions that sort of was in my head, like what would have been, what would have been different? Um, but I, I think, you know, we, we talked before about, or I mentioned before about the difference between that sort of the British 
um, cultural position in that late 40s compared to the American. Um, I also think if you look at um, the European model, you know, that this is this is still an area coming out of the war um, and they took comics in a, in a very, you know, in a different direction. And they, we've talked about this in the past where we talked about Meta Barons and um, there's there's so many other examples of sort of like European comics that come out of that, the, um, the 60s, I suppose, in, in particular uh, and beyond that, you know, could that have really been... Um, the future that you you could have seen in America. You know, I I don't know that I really believed this narrative that I had growing up and that I read um, uh, about comics growing up anymore. I don't know that I'd like to believe it. Certainly, in a better world, that's what would have happened. Mm. Um, but you know, you and I grew up in um, in America and and. And a Britain that were that were vastly more conservative places than they are today, mm-hmm. um, and the America and the Britain of a generation before that was even more vastly conservative and repressive. Um, and it, it's hard for me, you know, like in America, we what we had in the '60s was we had the the comic shows and comics with an X, right? The undergrounds mm-hmm. and in head shops and, you know, crumb and all this stuff. But we didn't get, um, we didn't get the, the stuff that Britain got. We never got, um, you know, the Hugo Pratt and, um, you know, uh, the, uh, uh, you know, sexy space stories and things like this. So the 2008 um, or the warrior kind of. Right. Well, I mean, 2008, um, was revolutionary at the time, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, the, I mean, the descriptions of, of Brits reading 2000 AD, um, you know, compared to the much more sort of staid conservative anthologies that were available in the late 70s, I mean, 2000 AD was like, you know, such a breath of fresh air and, and violent and crazy and, um, and, and yeah, it still had a kind of like pulpy disposability, but but was uh, just seemed radical, right? Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, that's it's interesting that sort of in Britain in particular, you know, we'd had uh, you'd had Dan Dare, who was very much a sort of uh, a standard um, sci-fi hero, you know, in that mould of sort of uh, Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon, um, and uh, yeah, so two thousand AD sort of took a lot. Of, I mean, especially for a, a country that was very much used to things like the Beano. Uh, the dandy um they had other there were other anthologies and actually um i know that uh like pat mills had, had started doing some some comics that were ca- were canned very very quickly because they were deemed too too violent um and they were the, the crime comics and um so they transferred them all into a sci-fi environment and got away with it they were like you know oh yeah instead of the blood being red yeah. it, it's now green and nobody cares um, right. So, it is. I suppose it's all about context and that point of view. Um, but yeah, you're right. Like you say, you know, even as a kid, um, I remember that you know I was initially brought up on like the Beano and the Dandy, and that's how I saw comics was very very safe. And it wasn't until later on that you sort of you you do see these other things. And you go, oh my god, this this is 
This is crazy. Um, so I suppose I can understand. Yeah, it's, it's just hard. No, go on. Go ahead. I, was, it's, 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 I suppose I can understand that sort of mentality from the especially in the fifties. If there is something, as you said, about a parent that walks into their child's room and all of a sudden you do see them reading EC Comics, that that thing of like, oh my, oh my God, this is you know, instead of it thinking, oh my God, this is amazing sort of thing as the kids were, this is a, oh my, oh my God, you're reading, you know, something horrific. Um, I can sort of understand it, but it still feels like that overreaction. Yeah, no, I I agree with that. Um, you know, and I and I've had very frank discussions with. Um, you know, comic scholars and comics pros about, in which people have confessed, you know, if they found their uh, eight-year-old reading some of these easy comics, they don't know that they would be okay with it today. Mm. Um, so, I mean, for me, it's much less of an issue. I mean, I'm, I'm much more uh, a uh, sort of, you know, I have an academic uh, librarian kind of culture in which, you know, uh, these things are not damaging. Um, and I might want to have a conversation with that child mm-hmm. uh, about how they're processing it, but, uh, but I wouldn't automatically be horrified. Um, but I think you're right that, that it would have been horrific even in our lifetime. And, and I guess that I sort of feel as if... Um, Britain and America were fundamentally more conservative places mm. than France, um, you know, than, than Belgium, than Italy, where some of the stuff that was really good came out earlier. Um, and I don't know that there is an alternate timeline in which comics really did evolve uh, uncorrupted by the evils of Frederick Wortham. And, and I also think there's been an attempt to rehabilitate Wortham. Um, you know, he was the antichrist to, you know, comics readers mm-hmm. uh, growing up. I mean, he was the embodiment of society's judgment that these were for kids and these were of poor quality and had no mental nutritional value. And, and I don't know that that was... That that's really true about Wortham. Uh, I think I think the, the yeah I think he. It's a difficult one because it's it's not like he did this for fame and fortune. You know, like they say, he he gained notoriety from it, and and I, you know I'm, I'm sure it did gain him some some revenue. But I, I mm-hmm. you know, when you read this, I you know like he genuinely did believe that that he was possibly doing the right thing so oh, his heart might have been in the right place the issue i have is um the corruption of the evidence and almost um for want of a better phrase the bible thumping about it Do you know what i mean the sort of like the, the this sort of stubborn conviction that, that he was right um and not wanting it for it to be a dialogue but more for it to be a lecture is 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 where i yeah. sort of feel it's that's where he falls down a little
Yeah. So we always knew that he had bad scholarship, right? I mean, because when you're printing 50 million comics a year, every kid has been exposed to comics. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, if you're if you don't know what those are, and you're in a mental institution, or you're, and you're dealing with troubled patients, and you don't think that, you know, I mean, Wortham was a liberal. Mm. Wortham did not think that. I, I mean, I think there's a there's an there's an important uh, point here about how uh, Wortham believed that society made these kids bad. Yeah. That they were not just born bad. They weren't, you know, it wasn't just that they were poor and, and their natural place was predisposed to crime. And, you know, you're always going to have to lock up a certain percentage of the lower classes. I mean, Wurzum hated those attitudes. I mean, mm. Wurzum defended, you know, uh, Ethel Rosenberg. I mean, Wurzum uh, was very progressive on uh, uh, black issues and gay issues. You know, he was, he was, influential in the Brown versus Board of Education and desegregation. He wrote about how segregation as a social policy uh, had damaging psychological effects. And he was very interested in how society caused crime and society caused people to be violent. And it wasn't that these people were born bad or that you just had an individual problem that you needed to go to Freudian analysis about. Um, he wanted to acquit these kids and acquit their parents of responsibility. And the bugbear that he found was these violent comics that he kept finding on uh, mm. criminal kids time and time again and and made a causation where there clearly wasn't one there. Yeah, and that's the thing that you said. I think it, it, it's, it's one of those situations as well that... Um, it, it became a. I suppose it's like you say he he created it. Uh, he like you said you said he found this causation. He documented it, um, and it sounds like say he, he was helped when this book was published by a hungry media, and um, I suppose in the fifties also a, a paranoid um, society. You know, cause I suppose this is coming during the uh, you know the sort of the Cold War as well. So there's a lot of paranoia I suppose going on. So. It's, it's it's a scenario I think it was probably ripe for this kind of um, it was probably ripe for this kind of uh, scapegoating and um, you know looking for something to blame and it, I didn't realize how sort of a liberal he was actually um, you know I always assumed him to be a conservative so that's fascinating to find that out really well you know uh, at Secbart we uh, we did a diagram we did a, a movie called uh, diagram for delinquents that was directed by uh, Robert A. a. Emmons Jr. And, uh, you know, he really uh, dove hard into this and, and really tried to present a, a view that was sympathetic to where Wortham was coming from while still obviously uh, factually accurate about mm. the fact that he manipulated evidence. And he kind of... Um, you know, like, uh, Seduction of the Innocent wasn't a scientific psychological text, right? I mean, it was playing to um, the ladies' home journal crowd, you know? Mm. I mean, it was playing, it was a popular book. And 
Uh, it wasn't good research. It wasn't good science. I mean, he used his credential in a way that is is more reminiscent today of like a Dr. Oz, yes. you know, uh, of, of people who it's like, well, I've got that doctor before my name. But what I'm talking about is, is just nonsense. It's yeah. just popular, uh, um, you know, nonsense designed to uh, make my name or get on uh, Fox News or whatever. Um, and he's kind of an early example of that. Um, and I don't know that, I mean, I think he really did believe what he was saying, but, and he wanted to ban all comics, by the mm. way. I mean, he, he wanted to prohibit their sale to children, which in an odd way might have been a better outcome than what we got in this self-censoring code, because then maybe comics would have actually tried to, um, be written and illustrated for adolescents and for adults. Mm. Um, and instead what we got was their permanent neutering as a kind of uh, um, child medium. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting how these things react, how industries react. I mean, um, you know, I, 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 um, when I look at this scenario um, and the output, I mean, you know, fair play to the comic book industry that they sort of, whether they acknowledged it or not, they did take on that responsibility and trying to adhere to those rules. And you do get some terrible, terrible comics in the you know the uh, preceding years. Um, and a lot of you know say it's not until let's say the seventies where you sort of start to see a little bit of the light of things being clawed back. Um, but I do think of these other sort of um, who will think of the children kind of scares uh, in Britain. Um, you know, we had uh, Mary Whitehouse who tried to act as the conscience of the country and stop things like the the video nasties, um, you know, slasher films and stuff of the early eighties, and certain um, horror paperbacks. Um, you know, would, would try to be banned, and then you have things like the Satanic Panic and um, mm -hmm. people trying to bring down. Um, ga uh, gangster rap in the 90s and you also then get uh, the, the backlash against computer games and there's always going to be that thing um, and I suppose it, it, there's always probably going to be that character or that, that individual that has some semblance of authority that people feel they can rally behind and you know they that person then I suppose becomes the voice of, of that cause Um I suppose in this case, say Doctor Wortham, you know, obviously he was a doctor, but mm -hmm. it, it it was used as a rallying call and as a sort of a legitimising of, of of his work. Um, much I suppose others would deny yeah. on the line. Well, and I think you know all of these. Uh, you're quite right to, to cite these other instances, and and I think you know there's no there's no part of me that has anything but uh, disdain for these these cultural movement um i mean i think they're i think they're damaging i think they're they're hostile to uh free speech i think they're hostile to the very concept of art mm. um and, and i don't know why we keep falling for them um i i don't know why you know look i mean we all know that there's terrible stuff online um you know there's terrible stuff on youtube but um you know, it's not going anywhere. Mm. Uh, it's not. It's not all terrible. Most of it's fine. Um, you know, there's some that's. There's a little bit that's good. There's an awful majority. 
party that is, uh, you know, trash. And then there's a small percentage that is, you know, truly vile and gets taken down or doesn't. Um, but, you know, and, and we're debating this again. Um, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know why we keep falling for this. And I don't know why people think that um, looking at violence or looking at, I mean, of course, in both of our countries, we're more sexually repressed than we are mm. violent. Um, you know, we, I, I remember I had a uh, French professor who, uh, when he came to the United States for the first time, he went to see a movie in the theaters, and it was, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, violent action movie, and there were kids in the seat next to him who, you know, were just laughing and having so much fun, and he was in a fetal position in his seat, covering his eyes, you know, horrified <laughs> by the blood and gore, and people getting their brains smashed out on concrete, and, um, and yet if you show sexuality in the slightest or nudity, uh, you know, both of our countries still have more of a problem mm. with that. Um, you know, and I think of, you know, I keep thinking of the MPAA and the fact that we still have a production code for film that while not remotely as onerous as the comics code, um, you know, obviously you can make R-rated movies, but it is really insidious and it works in the same way um, as far as censoring what gets distributed. So in theory, there's no abridgment of freedom of speech, but try making a movie that, you know, uses the F word too many times or, um, you know, shows, uh, you know, lesbian sex or something like this, and you're very quickly going to find you cannot get it into a movie theater. Well, um, it, you know, you're, you're right. I think um, there have been examples, there's numerous examples, because there's always a way to make money from any of this. And I think studios have now become savvy to this, where you will see sort of, um, there'll be the theatrical release and then the unrated version that's released on, on uh, home media. Um, right. And, and I think of versions of films where, you know, the unrated version might actually be, like I say, the director's... Uh, actual um, choices, you know, it's, it's there are some different edits or there's some slightly different um, choices of scene or whatever, and you think, okay, that makes sense, and so it's a bit more extreme for that purpose. But then you get sort of other films where it's like you know, literally like two minutes longer, and it's sort of like, oh, there's a bit more blood, um, and a kissing scene or a sex scene goes on a couple of seconds longer. And that's it. And you sort of think, so this is the difference between for America, or, you know, an R rating and, and, and an un, an unrated version. And you sort of think, it feels a bit nitpicky. Isn't it? Yeah, and it also feels, feels arbitrary. Um, you know, it's been pretty well documented that, um, you know, that homosexual contact is, uh, is discriminated against by the MPA. That gets mm. you unrated or, or to the R immediately. Um, you know, and, and then again, like the violence versus, versus sexuality or a curse word. I mean, um, and all, all of this seems, seems shocking to me because there's no 
10-year-old who hasn't heard the most vile curse words imaginable yeah. you know, yeah. in this day and age. <laughs> what, are, what do you think you're protecting them from? I mean, they have the Internet. Um, you know, this seems just a relic of a, of, a, of a bygone era, but we still do this. And so I think in terms of Wortham and in terms of the comics code, um, you know, while obviously I don't like the comics code and, and I grew up with, you know, reading comics that, that were inhibited by it, um, we still do do this. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny because, again, it's been turned on its head. And, again, so there's ways of making money out of these things. And, uh, you know, we in this country have an age uh, um system so you have the universal you the pg and then it goes 12 15 18 and so you know uh, an r in america is usually a 15 a hard r it could maybe get an 18 uh, push um but nc17 will definitely be an 18 um but the um this thing, especially in the comic, in the in the the geek culture at the moment, or in the, that sort of the geek community, this thing of a comic book film or uh, uh, you know a genre film being awarded an R is almost a sort of um, a badge of legitimacy. Again, oh well, they've gone for the hard R, then it must be a proper film. <laughs> and again, well, it, can, it can still be crap. <laughs> You know, let's not. No, forget, that's quite true. You know, so, but there's this thing now of like, oh no, they've gone for the, they've gone for the hard R. It's, it's going to be good, and it's, so they've tried to turn it on its head to say, you know, you've got. A, I mean, Deadpool is a good example of where they've, they've taken a character and they've, they've been uh, authentic to the character and kept a level of integrity to it. You know, and it almost would have deserved that. But then there's others where they've done it, and you think, yeah, it, it, it didn't need this. Yeah, well, I agree with that completely, and I agree with what you're saying about the, the unrated uh, DVDs and Blu-rays. But it also occurs to me that, um, you know, one reason why there's probably not that much footage that is really that much different is because those major studios know what's going to get what rating. Yeah. And, you know, so, so the, from the very conception of the movie through the writing of the script, they have aimed for a certain rating. Mm. And while it's true, I mean, it, you know, it's true that there is this kind of like, uh, you know, get the unrated version, you know, yeah. March 15th or something. Um, and there is that kind of like legitimacy thing of, you know, we went for the hard R. Um, you know, uh, at the same time, you know, like we were talking about like... Um, uh, uh, Man of Steel and the violence at the end mm. of that. Well, you don't see a lot of people actually getting killed. No. Um, and I'm sure they didn't shoot those people getting killed. There's no unrated version that's ever going to appear in which people are cut in half like crazy, right? Yeah. And you watch people falling in the skyscrapers to their death because nobody shot that stuff because that's not going to get in there. Um, I'm not saying we need to show all of that, but that's an artistic choice that was prohibited from the filmmakers and from the writers due to that system. Mm. Um, in the same way that, you know, obviously the comics code was a lot worse. I mean, the comics code was like saying every comic is going to be a G-rated comic. Yeah. Um, that, that's a lot more draconian. Yeah. Um, 
and in some ways it has more to do with like the Hays Code in America that preceded the MPAA that was a lot more stringent. And, you know, at the time, um, you know, even growing up, we had like the Catholic League that would protest things and they protested the Passion of the Christ. And, mm. and I remember that growing up, but they used to be a big uh, cultural influence in this country. And they were responsible uh, to a large degree for the Hayes Code in movies, and they uh, were responsible for the bulk of the burnings of comics that occurred in this country in the uh, late 40s and early 50s. It's, um, it's actually worth at this point, because I think you know uh, the Hayes Code is an interesting one, because I know it comes up quite a lot quite early on in the film industry, that we, we should sort of, I think, quickly discuss the, that actually, you know, and how that comes into it because i mean i read um a book um called a monster show it was a cultural history of horror in america and that talks about the Hayes code quite a lot um you know sort of through the years and what what when did that start is that that that, that comes in from the sort of 30s as well doesn't it um, and I know that had all kinds of things again. And the Hayes Code seems to be very the Hayes. I don't know who if it was based on a person. I don't not sure, but that leans very heavily towards sexual content versus violent content as well, doesn't it? I mean, um, yeah. I mean, you might you might know more about it than I do. Um, you know, but you know, I remember reading it and thinking this is really very uh, religious, very Catholic, very. Uh, you know, concerned with how authority figures are presented and repressing sexuality. Oh, well, yeah, that's the big thing, isn't it? When you read, especially sort of um, going into the sort of... I mean, horror films got it because of the, 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 the horror content and the monsters. So you, the, the universal monsters were always being picked up for different things. Um, and the two that sort of I remember, being, if I remember rightly, that was um, the... the um, Monster, the, yeah, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, you know, there were several depictions of obviously a, a woman in a uh, swimsuit. You know, potentially under threat from a creature, um, and there was there was the concern of again that sort of thing being um, having a sexual overtone. And um, before that, I think it's one of the Wolfman films as well gets a similar sort of thing. And you do you sort of listen to their justification, and it's it's bizarre. But the really weird ones were, uh, if you go to more the crime films, the noir films, and um, the depiction of the sort of the the femme fatale, and this thing would actually de- say things like you could only show this much leg, or you could, you know, they, if they were going to do this, uh, you know, if they were, if they were going to wear a dress like this, then they'd have to wear a top like this, and if they were going to kiss, like you had to, you, they, you you had to cut away like just before they made. Um, contact, or you know, there was, there was it was so convoluted, and as you said, arbitrary yeah. as well. Um, uh, uh, that you living in a you know, sometimes you question it, but a more liberal uh, era, and you look at these things and you look at these films that, that were impacted by this, and you just sort of go, Huh, what? It, it, it's a baffling, it, it baffles me, but again, this was a new medium. And I think people were concerned and conf- and in that conservative nature, they weren't sure how this was going to grow in the long term. Right, and I think that, you know, it was also a more conservative era generally. And I think that, you know, when you imagine early motion pictures and you think of the fear of the 
of mm. moving images. Um, you know, it's one thing for people to read Lady Chatterley's Lover or something. It's another thing. It seems more scary for them to see some of these things. Yeah. Um, and I think that the, the, the comic code is like that, too. I mean, it seems, you know, you can linger on the page of, you know, the image of the decapitation, right? Yes. Um, whereas, I mean, classic literature, I mean, you read uh, Homer and it's filled with horrendous levels of violence, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, and sexuality, but, you know, it, that's good literature, right? It's yeah. just lines on the page. There's something about the visuals that scared us. I think you're right. I think it's that thing, isn't it? About it takes away any level of interpretation because it becomes, um, you know, sub subtext becomes text. Basically, you know, anything that can be insinuated or implied in um, in in literature becomes pretty explicit. And in, in and as you said, because the storytelling wasn't wasn't subtle in those early comics. Um, so I suppose it is pretty explicit in a storytelling context. Um, yeah, I, I think you, you make an excellent point about, you know, sort of subtext becoming text. And, and you know, I think, like, it, it's one thing for a kid to read that people kiss or, you know, and implies that they have sex. It's another thing to see it, mm, right? Yeah. <laughs> you know, my God, people are going to see it. And, and then in a more conservative society, well, what's this going to do, right? Are, you know, uh, boys going to want to have uh, lots of sexual partners? Are mm. women even more of a threat? You know, is, is their sexuality no longer going to be controlled? Um, you know, this seems a kind of existential threat to a conservative culture. Uh, yeah, and I think that's the, you know you make the, the good point there about this ex- existential crisis of or this existential uh, threat that you know they 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 couldn't con- they didn't feel they could control it it was it was it was it was seeping in to their world that that, that world of conformity I suppose um, uh, almost un- almost under their nose which feels more insidious and more sort of um, sinister than. You know, like you say, than 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 if they'd have known about it. Um, but I think the, the point you make, you make this point about the, the comics being neutered after, and you know, we, we you look at the '60s comics, and you're right, the the horror comics and the crime comics pretty much disappear overnight, um, and you're replaced with a Batman who wears a, a rainbow suit, fights aliens, uh, and su- a Superman who fires at a mini version of Superman from his hand. Um, and, and, you mean to tell me Batman shouldn't wear a rainbow suit and fight aliens? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it depends what day of the week it is, but um, the, the, <laughs> as you say, sort of like it's it's interesting to see that the the way that they still try to like the the, the like I would say the big two because the second one you know Marvel didn't really come out until later, but for the for that period sort of the late fifties into the sixties, sort of comics tried to adapt. Um, as they always do. Uh, do you think there's anything? Do you think there is anything of note or of worth uh, in that period that you know that 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 has a legacy? Oh sure. I mean, I think that uh, um, you know, I, I I'm actually not a tremendous fan of uh, you know early Marvel, um, but I rather like uh, 
you know, showcase and, uh, you know, the Carmine Infantino Flash and mm. John Broom, uh, Green Lantern. And, uh, you know, I rather like that stuff. And I, I think there's a kind of charm to, um, to uh, you know, even, uh, you know, the sort of silly Superman and Batman stories of the period and the Justice League. And, you know, it's all sort of silly 50s superhero stuff. But I, I don't think it's worthless. I, I think that any time you impose these codes, there are creative solutions. Mm. And, you know, I think that sometimes people say, like, art is about limitation. And so it's good to limit artists because they come up with these creative limitations. And you were talking about cinema and how, you know, the stereotype of, like, a man and woman kiss and you you pan up to the ceiling or out the yes. window and... Yeah, you know what's yeah. happening. Yeah. I mean, you know, there are a lot of creative solutions. I mean, that's a stereotype because of censorship. Mm. And there are a lot of creative solutions and creative storytelling solutions that happen anytime you censor something. Um, so, I, I mean, I don't think that uh, while comics were neutered, I don't think that they died. I don't think that there's anything... Um, I, I don't think that's the same thing as saying that all comics from that period are worthless. I just think that, um, you know, I'm, a, you know, we were talking about like '80s animation, and both of us are nostalgic, uh, you know, love of, of '80s animation. Mm. Um, I want, you know, silly '80s animation for kids to coexist alongside, you know, Akira and Robotech and, and stuff for adults. Yeah, uh, and you know, Miyazaki and, and everything else. I, I want the freedom for uh, people to make any kind of comic they want or any mm. kind of movie they want. And, and I think when you say it can only be this, that's the problem. Are there comics from that period that you like or find value in? I, honestly, I, it's, 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 I do, as you said, they have a charm. I do kind of like the daft, the Batman ones in particular. Um, because they are so um, off the wall. I mean, they they make the '60s Batman series look tame, you know, in comparison. In, in some cases, um, the yeah, some of them are just you know. Let's say it introduces ideas like Batmite. Um, you know, I love Batmite. Yeah, I think Batmite's fantastic. It's a great idea that's developed over time. And I, I think, like you say, there were limitations, and a character like Batman in particular, um, you know, that starts as a sort of like a dark urban vigilante um, with relatively, you know, quite dark stories, to then become this sort of day glow, um, daylight hero, you know, it, it, it's a literal changing of night to day. Um, right is fascinating and like you say that some of it is terrible some of it is unreadable um today but there are still some great bits in it and i think you know around this era you do get the introduction of other characters um and it is it is through necessity because they couldn't do a continuation of the joker stories that they used to be so uh, yeah. yeah, no, they are. There, there, there is definite stuff of worth there. I'm just curious sometimes what other people think because it is one of those areas that you do go. Well, some of it, some of it is utter. I will admit, some of it is utter um, 
trash and it's it's clear that it was pumped out quickly uh, and with little thought but there's a, there are other bits where someone has really let their imagination run free in an almost childish yeah, it, in an childish way and it pays off well and you know i mean i i like you know bad girl sort of comes out of that era mm. um you know and i grew up reading a lot of the stories um because they were available to me mm. um and you know i remember you know i i had a library that had uh some of these like 50 superman stuff um in black and white in some, you know, reprint or something. And, you know, this was the 1980s, and, you know, I couldn't get graphic novels. Um, uh, but I read, I must have read everything they had that was comics. Um, I love the, the Fortress of Solitude with the giant keys. Yes. And I love the uh, 50 Supergirl. I mean, you know, I, you know, I, I love the sort of... Uh, you know, blend of fifties uh, prim and proper with uh, with the Supergirl story. Uh, it's kind of oddly charming to me. Um, not that I think that's the only way it has to be done. Um, I love crypto. My God, mm. the Legion of Super Pets. I mean, yeah. it's the most. That, that's exactly what you're you're talking about. Of sort of like it's a daft idea, but it's so childlike and charming and so amazing. I, I, you know, Batman has a bat dog, right? I mean, yes. Yeah. <laughs> wonderful. I uh, yeah, and I love the fact that you say that. With, with, <laughs> this is the idea, like you know, it seems daft, but they've they've persisted. I mean, bat dog, um, is uh, I forget what, of course I can't remember what the dog's actually called, but the the, the fact that they they give the dog a cow, like that they the, the, like yeah. as if the dog needs a secret identity, it, you know, so, <laughs> it's brilliant. But it is, it is. It's, 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 there's a childlike wonder, but also uh, an explosion of these sci-fi concepts um, that they're able to explore. And like I say they do go to other planets and they do have these daft ideas and some of it they do have to, to sort of like, they have to retcon out pretty quickly. So, oh, that one was a dream or, oh, Batman was actually trapped in a dream machine or he was trapped in a hypnotic machine or something where, so that the story doesn't matter, but it was a great little adventure. Um kind of thing well and, and I love uh, you know the, the version of Lois Lane who's like uh, obsessed with I mean it's obviously sort of sexist in the 50s but, <laughs> but sort of obsessed with like I'm going to reveal that he's really Clark Kent you know um, you know that she's <laughs> not interested in being a reporter at all uh, yeah. has no professional uh, interest except her obsession with uh, that secret I know Superman's hiding you know um no, I think all of this is, is quite charming. Um, but but I do think that it is strange to me, and, and the older I get, the more, um, you know, I grew up with superheroes, but the, the older I get, the more I kind of am slowly cured of the superhero bug that I mm. had growing up. And, and I, I think that a lot of these stories are charming, but we don't know what the alternative would have been, and certainly one of the... You know, one of the consequences besides that the idea that comics were just a kid's medium uh, was also inscribing the equivalence of superheroes in comics. Mm. And I think you still see this today. Um, people still say, well, that's a, that's a comic book device, you know. 
or as it's a comic book plot, you know, and, and they mean that sort of silly, how bam zap, uh, superhero stuff, um, which is not really the superhero stuff of most of our lifetimes at this point, um, and certainly not of, of Hollywood today, but, um, but these legacies still persist. Yes. And those were a consequence of them. No, that's true. I think that's the thing that really persists is this notion of, of comic books for kids. Because I think even, you know, it's been, you know, 60 plus years now, 70 years since this happened. And, um, you know, really, like you say, it happened in the late 50s through the 60s into the 70s. But, but by the 70s, you know, you get into the Bronze Age and you do start to get, whilst they still adhere to the comic book code, you do start to see a, a a more lenient approach to it, um, you know, because you do start to see characters and, and scenarios that are probably a bit more challenging. I mean, it's uh, uh, you know, you you get the creation of Man Thing, Swamp Thing, um, Werewolf by Night, um, Moon Knight. Uh, you know, you then get hard traveling heroes. Um, you know. With um, Green Lantern and Green Arrow taking on sort of like you know politics in America or sort of like you know society in America, and in in Batman you get sort of the introduction of uh, Rachel Ghoul and um, the Denny O'Neill years, where they are still adhering yeah. to that comic book code, but there's a sort of slightly you know slightly more slightly more lenient approach to it, but they're taking a slightly there's a slightly um, to say adult is probably, you know, is doing it a disservice, but there's a more sophisticated uh, thought process going into what they can actually do with the comics again. Right, and, and you had, like, the drug issues of, mm. um, you know, not just uh, Green Lantern and Green Arrow, but there was uh, of Spider-Man, too. Um, mm. and, I, and I think for those, they actually... The code was revised in the 70s to permit these kinds of comics and these kinds of stories. And it's not really clear after the initial years of the code how well it was really all that really enforced. Yeah. Um, you know, if you were DC and Marvel, I mean, you know, you're paying your dues to, uh, you know, the comics code. Uh, you know, they're not going to really come down on you too hard. Yeah. Um, and, and, and ultimately, I mean, I think those issues of Spider-Man were solicited, were, were on newsstands without the code seal, and nothing happened. Mm. You know, nobody went crazy. Uh, the newsstand probably didn't even remember what that code was anymore. Yeah. Um, and at, at, at that point, it was clear the code really had no teeth. Mm. But strangely, it still persisted until the early 2000s. Yeah. Um, it's it's very bizarre as this kind of like relic. Um, but but even then, you know, I mean, I was a child of, you know, the stories that I loved uh, in comics were predominantly influenced by that seventies generation that, mm. that tried to make comics a little more adult, a little smarter. Um, and then the the next generation, or you know, ten years later, they come in and they're doing Dark Knight and Watchmen and, and all of this. Um, and you had you know epic comics at Marvel and you know I mean all of that stuff was what I loved. Yeah. But it was still superhero stuff, and it was still trying. 
50 stories more adult, right? I mean, yes. all those tropes that were really set in the 50s, right? Um, let's get rid of Bat Dog. Let, you know, we're going to make Superman, you know, emo. Um, yeah. You know, they're reacting against something that was itself an artificial consequence of the comics code. Um it, it, it is, yeah. I suppose it's, it's you know something they, they, I suppose they, they did place on themselves, and they sort of, I, I yeah, I'd forgotten. I, I probably still have issues in my collection that I have purchased first hand um, that will have the, the the comic book code stamp on, you know, somewhere. Yeah. Um, so yeah, to forget they sort of they took on for that long. I mean, you, you you know you mentioned obviously about the um, the different generations and and. Um, taking on those stories and I say but those stories still persisting and you can see how they've influenced people though um like you say up to today because people are still going back and it's influenced and Alan Moore obviously written uh, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow as a sort of a uh, you know a closer for that that you know for silver age superman um and and, and sort of again like taking on some of that the, the the huge key for the uh, um Fortress of Solitude and some of those sillier ideas, but which is awesome. Yes, it is. I do, I do like that. I do love that story. Um, but like you say, they do persist and they do come across. I mean, you know, for all intents and purposes, when you take a lot of superheroes at their at their core, um, you know, they are a little bit silly. Uh, and you sort of have to accept that, and then, you know, so you can make them as adult and sophisticated, and that does not mean that they aren't great storytelling devices, or, you know, they can't be utilised to tell fantastically sophisticated and emotional stories, but the concept of a boy bitten by a radioactive spider, (laughs) and then wears a skin-tight suit, and doesn't tell anyone about it, is still a little bit silly. Um, Oh, yeah. And, and so I suppose that sort of, like I say, the hangover of uh, of all this is, especially for superheroes, is as, as a comic book fan, you sort of have to acknowledge all eras of this and go, yeah, okay, it is what it is, but actually, you know, we you know, even during that period, you get the sort of the Ditko and Stan Lee work that's actually really good, um, or the you know the John Remitter, Remitter art and all this other amazing bits and pieces, and you do, but you still get the silly stuff, but then like you say. That has then spawned other great things, you know, that you can look at and go, actually, this is a great story and stands up to the test yeah. of time. I think that's true. At the same time, uh, I find myself, you know, I mean, I obviously I grew up on these same stories, um, but I find myself thinking, you know, um, you know, what would John Romita have done if he hadn't had to work as superhero? Mm. Um, what would some of these artists who you know we love we love their line work we wouldn't want them to never have done a superhero story at the same time you know can you imagine having the skill of a Gil Kane Mm. and you know your entire life is just producing uh, schlock you know and and superhero schlock and, and having to cram out a an issue a month of this. Um, you know, and not all of it is schlock, and, you know, you and I have both nostalgia for it, but also love for it for its 
Mm. Um, but then I think about like you know the Marvel movies and how much. I mean, they're a lot closer to me to 1950s superhero stories than they are to Watchmen. Um, you know, they're all sort of very bright and glitzy, and yeah, the villain kills a few people, but it's all the same sort of like character arc to becoming the good hero who doesn't kill, and, and you know, they're in a universe in which, you know, uh, aliens can invade, and there's also magic, and it's all kind of thrown together with no uh, understanding about how a genre works, right? Mm. Um, you know, that you probably don't want, like, uh, aliens and Harry Potter to be in the same universe, you know? Yeah. Um, but that doesn't matter, because that didn't really matter in 50s and 60s superhero comics. So we're still kind of repeating things that ir- the things that irritate me are products of the comics code and are mm. products of um, of this era that we're talking about. Um, and they irritated me as a young adult, too. Um, you know, you look at, like, uh, you know, uh, Japanese anime, and there are plenty of animes where the hero isn't really so clearly a hero. Mm. They might have superpowers, but, you know, yeah, they kill people and they do some bad stuff, and they make some bad calls and have to live with it uh, in a way that we wouldn't even permit most of our superheroes, at least on screen, uh, because they've got to, they got to, you know, have a shot at making a billion dollars to be. Um, And part of that wanting to make a billion dollars is, you know, get that, that PG, maybe PG 13 rating. um, You know, yeah. I don't know. Uh... No, I agree. I think that's the thing. It's sort of, I mean, you know, if you ever say, um, you know, Henry Cavill did a great job, but uh, for me, you know, everyone talks about Christopher Reeve Superman, sort of the Superman the movie and Superman two, um, you know, either cut, you know, you can't tell me that's not Silver Age Superman. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so it's, it's, it's when you do back look, look back at that fifties and early sixties style and go, oh, it was silly and those things. Yeah, but the personification of that, the Christopher Reeve Superman, is, you know, is perfect. It, it's exactly what you want it to be. It's a, it's a brightly coloured superhero, um, and then so you, you wind that forward, and um, those, like you say, those, it, to take it, uh, to take it to, um, obviously it hasn't been released yet. Uh, when, you know, when we're recording this, but you can't tell me that the Shazam film that's coming out this year isn't going to be a brightly coloured you know, superhero film that contains an idea of an interdimensional wizard that gives you the ability to change with the, with the use of a magic word to a 10-year or to a 13-year-old boy. Um, right. You know, we, we've talked about this both with Miracle Man and with, with others as well, where you talk about that sort of, that, you know, the, um, the superhero uh, you know, uh, wish fulfilment. And Shazam is Shazam. This Shazam film looks, you know, the epitome of that. This is this isn't watching Captain America become that hero. This is watching me as a boy, not me, but a child become a superhero. Is so sort of of that era, um, and you know, it's going to be brightly coloured. It looks like it's going to have silly moments in it and all this other stuff. And I think it's going to be all the better for it. Yeah, I agree, and I think there's room for that. Mm. Um, I, I guess that um, I guess the 
want uh, diversity. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, imagine if every superhero movie had to be that, right? True. I mean, like when we were talking, I also thought about Marvel Man, you know, as we were talking earlier. Mm. And imagine if, you know, I mean, do you really want to read most of those Marvel Man comics? No, it's right. Um, <laughs> and, and the Alan Moore stuff is, is great, but the Alan Moore stuff is deconstructing those same tropes mm. that were side effects of the comics code. Um, and I think, you know, that's the world we live in, and that's fine, and I love those comics. But, um, but I would like to see a diversity of approach, and I'd like to see a diversity of genre. Um, and it amazes me to think that when I look at uh, comics being produced today, how, you know, DC and Marvel are still 100% superheroes. Mm. Um, there's a little bit at Vertigo, but uh, not much, and it doesn't have the teeth that it had before. Um, you know, obviously Dark Horse and Image are, you know, and, and other companies, boom, you know, they're not uh, predominantly superheroes, but... Um, you know, I, I'd like to see more of a diversity of genre and more of a diversity of approach, even within that genre. And you can have a Shazam film and have a, you know, Watchmen film or, uh, you know, something that uh, where the protagonist isn't a, uh, a hero or, or struggles with this or where you have an all-powerful Superman figure who... Um, you know, maybe uh, screws the planet up. Mm. Um, and I think both those films can exist simultaneously. You can do the, you know, I mean, I want uh, a uh, Batman who uh, powers around with Batmite and uh, dresses his rainbow outfit, and I, and I want my Dark Knight too. Um, and I think you can do both. I guess that I just react negatively to the idea that it should all be one or the other, you know, that there, and that's what the comics code did. Yes, no, I agree with that. I definitely think it, it, it restricted everything. And whilst I do think, like you say, some, some interesting and good things came out of that through um, necessity, like you said, there was a, yeah, there was a lack of diversity and there couldn't be the expression, I think, that, you know, that we could have had. Um, I do, I mean, I do think we live in a... Um, a better period for diversity in comics. Uh, there could be better. There could be more. I think the big two, in particular, do hold very tight reins over some of their um, stories. Uh, but you do, I think, every now and then, you do get the ones that seem to sort of like come out of nowhere, that um, you know either subvert the genre or take it in a very different direction. Um, all of a sudden, and I think you know, um, uh, Tom King. Recently, has done some good work on uh, the visionary. The vision uh, he did a twelve-ish yeah. series. You know, was, was a really. Good, I loved that series. Uh, I thought it was fantastic. Uh, I haven't read his Mister Miracle yet, but I hear that that's like another really good one where it sort of it it took that opportunity to be um, something incredibly different and and you know really make you think. And uh, even from my perspective of, of in the last couple of years. Oh, I mean, I've been really fortunate as a as a uh, a Moon Knight fan um, to have had both sort of the Warren Ellis run, which is yeah, it leans into its sort of superheroic kind of stuff, but still has you know a six issue run from Warren Ellis yeah. where each issue is somewhat completely different and introduces different elements of it. 
And then that's followed up by the Jeff Lemire run, which is not super heroic. In it. It really, it's a complete dissection of the character, but runs as a 14-issue series. Um, you know, and he's one of the most, has become, you know, for, other, for Moon Knight fans at least, one of the most celebrated runs of the, of the, the character. These things sort of pop up, you know, in amongst all the sort of like the flashy superheroics, and um, I'll be honest, I, recently in particular, I, my my pull list has dwindled because nothing on the on that list is is, is you know was sort of like tickling my fancy. I was going back yeah. and, and getting those collected, uh, you know, older things, and going, do you know what? I really fancy reading Planetary again. Or you know, I really fancy going back and reading. Um, one of the things I really, want, I really, I really want to go back and read all of Transmetropolitan again, or those comics where, like you say, it's not super heroics, or it's got a, a tinge of it, but it's something else, um, and it's where the imagination has been set free, and it's full of diversity. Um, so, I, whilst I think things, you know, there are probably fantastic books going on at, at Image or. Uh, Dark Horse and Boom and IDW and those others, I do feel there's a limit. For me, at least, I've I'm I'm slowly walking away from superhero comics a bit at the moment. Yeah, I, I found that too, and you know, I mean, I I, I like Mister Miracle. Um, I don't think I was quite as charmed by uh, by it as some of the reviews that I saw, but mm. you know, I mean, I've been reading, you know deconstructive superhero comics since I was a kid. Yeah. But, I mean, I, you know, I, I enjoyed it. I read all of it. Uh, I'm reading Heroes in Crisis now by Tom King. Um, you know, I, I, I dig what he's doing. Uh, you know, it's one of the few, you know, superhero mm-hmm. stuff that, that I'm reading at the moment. Um, but I have the same, I have the same sort of instinct of, um, you know, as I've gotten older, diving back into other stuff like, you know, we're talking about Meta Barons in a previous podcast, mm. or Miracle Man, or uh, you know, Planetary, uh, you know, The Authority, um, you know, even some of that. Um, you know, I've been on a, a kick of rereading uh, Black Widow and Electra comics. Mm. Um, you know, just like reading stuff like Phil Noto art, you know, which I just love oh, and yes. dig. Um, and you know, so I mean. You know, I think that as you get older, you know, it's not as compelling as it used to be. Mm. Uh, I don't know that you ever move out of the superhero genre, but I know that I, as a percentage of my comics reading, read less superhero stuff than ever before. And, you know, I, you know, as part of preparing for this podcast, I, you know, was uh, researching Wortham again, and I just started just reading tons of old DC comics. Um, you know, just enjoying, you know, they're not all great, but enjoying, you know, uh, Wally Wood, uh, sci-fi story that, mm. you know, I, I can ding in any number of ways, but that is fascinating to my brain in some way. Yeah, I know. I, I, I've, I've done some similar things. Like you see, I've gone back and read. Um, I, I picked some of those older horror comics and stuff, uh, the reprints, and you know a couple of EC, uh, but also there's others. Um, 
I forgot the called now. I've got a couple of black cat mysteries um, and some others. And like you said, they're not all great, but there's some really interesting ideas in there. Um, and I, again, it's one of those things when I look at those, and I think they're, they're really good fun. Um, and my my brain, I start making those connections again, and I think, oh, I wonder how that played out. You know, what's the link to these two things like the Twilight Zone and um, uh, the, those other horror oh, yeah. anthology things that come out later on, and and then other people that were influenced into those video nasties that came out in the late seventies, early eighties. You know, sort of all those sort of things. Um, it, it's, it's fascinating to go back to look at those. But I do th- so to go back to seduction of the seduction of the innocent, really to sort of round out. It's 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 a it's a milestone in comic book history um, that I think has been looked at from different angles, um, and it, it happened. You know, like you said, there's 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 this notion to sort of go, well, what would have happened if it if you know we hadn't have had that, um, but we did, and I, I think to when you look at it, I think. It's fascinating to see the impact it has had, and still this that still seems to be resonant today, because it it provided a cultural framework that persists for what society believes comics are. If that makes yeah, sense. I think that's very true. No, I think that's very true, and I think that. Um... You know, it's amazing to me that there are um, people who read comics today who I think are fortunate that they didn't grow up under the comic code. And, you know, maybe they've come into comics and, you know, they've enjoyed Scott Pilgrim and some Marvel movies and they have always known comics as a place that has more creative freedom and wasn't was, it's maybe a little stereotyped, but um, they didn't grow up under the burden that uh, you and I did. Mm. Um, and I think that's great. But I think that it's very easy if you walk into a comic book shop and you see all of that uh, diversity um, to not be aware of how important this chapter in comics history was and and as you say how it still um defines comics for a lot of people um and even in in subtle ways defines the stories we're telling i mean i think that stuff like mr miracle stuff like vision is enhanced by understanding how it is reacting to or still subverting those superhero tropes that got set in the 1950s. Mm. Um, And we celebrate works like that because, um, you know, as much as we have uh, Scott Pilgrim and Akira and all this other stuff, uh, comics in America, you know, really became uh, those 1950s superhero comics. And so a work like um, what Tom King is doing is able to subvert that and make a kind of commentary on, in some cases, comics history and, and what we expect from a comic in a way that's more impactful because it does represent this, this main line of, of what comics 
and have been. Yeah, no, I think that's a, I think that's really true. So, I think you know, as, a, as an outro, really for this, I think um, for those that are listening, one of the things we've always done on on Twentieth Century Geek is is look back at these things, and we we've discussed it for a bit. But I think it's really important that if you you know you consider yourself a comic book fan or you you know a, a fan of pop culture, then you know this is an era that you really should pay more attention to, you know, go have a look, you know, uh, Google it, check it out, um, and tr- try and search out some of the comics that, that Julie and I have mentioned, you know, those early sort of, uh, those 50s Batmans and, and, and the Green, early Green Lanterns and the Flash, um, and before that, check out some of the stuff that caused the the, uh, the panic, um, you know, those EC comics, um, the crime comics, um, and uh, even the sort of where Batman and Superman were at at the time, I think it's it's important and it's it's worth looking into because it gives you the context of, of what you are reading at the moment. Yeah, I'm into that. And, yeah. uh, you know, I mean, as much as I love comics, I, I uh, have never forgotten that comics are kind of a renegade medium that uh, not all that long ago... Uh, we're burned. Mm. Yeah. So, I think I think we should, well, no, I think that's it's true. So it's a point to remember on. It's a point to end on. Really, that that you know, this it's he shows how lucky we are right now to be to be able to enjoy all these comics as we have them now. Amen. So. Well, thanks for thanks for having me, and I hope that people check out your Patreon. Uh, yes, thank because you. I love what you're doing. Well, thank you for thank you for coming on as always, Julie. It's always a great conversation, and um, there will be many more to come. Yeah, do but do check out the Patreon. Uh, we're doing all kinds of bits and pieces, and uh, I think we're gonna have some other good fun coming up the, at the, to, uh, for the rest of the year. Yeah, I'm looking forward to it. It's always an honor to be on. Thank you so much, Scott. with Julian. Let me know what you think about post-comics code books. What was good, what was bad, and what do you think should be revisited? Please get in contact. Email me at 20thCenturyGeek at gmail.com or find us on Twitter and Facebook and all the other social media platforms by searching for 20th Century Geek. Let us know what you think of this topic and any other topic we've ever discussed. Also, I'd like to say that I have a collection of rare Silver Age comics for sale to keep the podcast going, but I'm afraid that's not the case. If you'd like to support the podcast, there are several ways in which you can do so. We've got a Patreon page that's got some great exclusive content that's going to be expanding to more things soon. Please go try check it out. We've also though got an Amazon wish list. And just go on Amazon and search for 20th Century Geek and there's a whole list of books on there that'll help us with future research. And of course, we love second-hand books in 20th Century Towers. 
So finally, go have a look over there. And of course, please leave a review of the show on iTunes or whatever podcast catcher platform you are listening to us on. These reviews are fantastic. Uh, I really appreciate them. And uh, this raises the profile of the show and lets more people find us. Okay, guys, as always, thank you for listening. And I'll see you again soon.